It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, David Aronovich here. This week, we've been listening back to some of our favourite episodes of 2022. April marked 40 years since the Falklands War. Manveen joined a father and son on a journey through time. As the war rages in Ukraine, and every day brings news of fresh horror, it's a poignant moment to be marking the 40th anniversary of another war. A war that sometimes gets forgotten. A war where a sovereign territory, a group of islands, were invaded by a big, tyrannical neighbour. A neighbour who didn't respect their borders or democracy. It would appear the sun has set on yet another corner of the British Empire. This one far down in the South Atlantic. Argentina today invaded and seized the Falkland Islands, which have been under British rule for nearly 150 years. Back then, Britain had sailed in to fight for the islanders. Britain promptly sent several of Her Majesty's warships steaming south and appealed to the United Nations. It all seems like something out of the 18th century, but the British, and for that matter the Americans, are not amused. The Falklands War isn't studied at school, and for many in Britain, it's fading from our collective memory. But for the islanders and the British armed forces who went to their rescue, the memory looms large. Hello. 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 Nice to see you again. Nice to see Hello. You. Dad. Thank you for... We have a couple of guests. For a little reminder, I headed down to a leafy town in Surrey on a beautiful sunny morning. I'd come to see Duncan Craig, the travel editor at The Times and The Sunday Times, and Duncan's father, Chris. This is Chris. <laughs> Hi. This is Manveen. Manveen. Yes. Thank you. Hello, Chris. Lovely to Not meet you. Not Christopher. I always <laughs> feel I've done something terribly, terribly wrong. Back in 1982, Chris Craig was the captain of the frigate HMS Alacrity, which was sent to the Falklands to regain the territory after Argentina's invasion. The memories came flooding back. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Not at all. So pleased you could. Oh, come on. When have you ever come across an old man who isn't happy to talk about himself? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Falklands... 40 years on, a father and son story.
Brilliant. Well, if we're ready, Chris, do you just want to start by introducing yourself? Uh, yes, Chris Craig, long-term Navy man, 34 years, grew up in Bournemouth, working mother, no father. He ran away when I was teeny-weeny, and I joined the Royal Navy at 18 and continued in that vein right through to retirement age. I'm Duncan, I'm Chris's son, and I am travel editor of The Times and The Sunday Times. I wouldn't ask your ages now, that'd be much too rude, but how old were you back in 1982? While you're doing the mental arithmetic, (laughs) I was 40. (laughs) And I was six. Now, we sort of wanted to go back to that moment. It was a huge moment in our national history. And you both experienced it in a way that most others wouldn't. Chris, what's your abiding emotion now, looking back on that period? I think, honestly, it is pride, pride in my people and my ship, and pride in the British military performance. So I look back with delight on that, and I now savour the comradeship of me and my people. Duncan, what's yours? Yes, I think pride also, but a more specific pride, a localised pride, very much pride for, for, for Dad and his role in what was a key war at the time and also one that was fought to defend such an important principle and one that's obviously relevant so much today, but that one of of national self-determination. Chris, take us back to 1982. So you were 40. What were you doing and where were you based? I had just had two years in command driving this lovely ship. And ironically, I was due to leave on the day that war was declared. My family had their bags packed for family holiday. There was a knock on my cabin door, three o'clock in the morning, sitting at anchor in Portland. We'd been doing weapon training for four weeks and were worn out. And it was a nice young communications sailor. He said, I've got an operation immediate signal for you, sir. So I quickly looked at it through blurred eyes and thought this could be my good-hearted operations officer having a last-minute spoof at his captain before I go. (laughs) But I quickly read it again, and it was quite clearly the real thing. Prepare your ship in all respects for war and be ready to proceed 8,000 miles to the South Atlantic, reporting when ready. Out. I rang Commander-in-Chief Fleet's office, and within 20 minutes, bless them, they said, it's your command. Prepare it, continue, and uh, you will take it to war. Tell us about the vessel. She was a little beauty. (laughs) Um, A little over 3,000 tonnes, very fast and rakish. She could get to very nearly 40 knots with two vast engines, the sort that used to power the Concorde aircraft, stacked full of weaponry. She was called Alacrity, and her motto was, I hasten to help. For people who've forgotten, because it is a long time ago now, just talk us through what was happening politically. Just remind us how the war began. There had been a lot of naughty ambivalence, in my view, beforehand, where we perhaps didn't make our devout involvement with the Falkland Islands as clear as we might, which could have perhaps stopped General Galtieri before he invaded. He was fairly tyrannical as a leader, He was conducting a dirty war against dissidents. His economy was in tatters. He wanted to distract the home audience by beating his breast and going to war. So just talk us through the final 
moment when war was declared and what got us there? How did, how did Britain end up engaged in conflict? Well, Margaret Thatcher had a variety of very quick meetings because the Argentinians had moved into South Georgia and were rolling up into the Falkland Islands. She sought advice and Admiral Sir Henry Leach stood up and said, Mom, if this is your wish, I can have a task group ready in all respects to go 8,000 miles down to the Falklands through the Roaring Forties, and I can have it ready in five days. And she promptly lit the blue touch paper. For the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. After several days of rising tension in our relations with Argentina, that country's armed forces attacked the Falkland Islands yesterday and established military control of the islands. And without being sentimental, I think the nation was absolutely galvanised. It is a government's objective to see that the islands are freed from occupation and are returned to British administration at the earliest possible moment. They cared, they knew it was just, and it motivated us from the very outset. You were a long way from home. Talk us through what was going through your mind as you're sort of heading down there. I was utterly preoccupied with the need to get my 200 young men, average age 23, g'd up and ready to engage in a fighting, killing, brutal unpleasant war. And Duncan, for you, aged six, preparing to go on holiday, do you remember how all of this played out? What what did you know of it at the time, apart from the fact that the holiday was cancelled? Yes, and of course, <laughs> at that age, that's the, that's the big thing, isn't it? Um, you know, I wasn't exactly precocious in my levels of empathy. I think Dad would probably argue that not much has changed on that, on that <laughs> side. But, um, you know, I was a six-year-old boy in a Bournemouth Primary School. There's a lot of playground hours to fill. This was a war that was filling the front pages. This, in a way, Dad's key role in it, that sort of gave me playground currency, I suppose you'd say. Um, so beyond beyond that, I, you know, I just had innate trust in Dad, I suppose, as, as any six-year-old would in, in their parents. There's something about that, isn't there? They're a sort of a constant force of omnipotence, really, where you wouldn't even question that anything would happen to them. And you now have a six-year-old daughter. When you look at her and think that was you when all of this was happening, when there was a war in the background and your father was engaged in it, I mean, how, how does that feel? Yes, there's a neat symmetry to that, isn't there? And it's interesting, you know, if, if I were to go off to war now, my six-year-old I know would be, would be very concerned, but perhaps only up until the point where she's offered the chance to go and watch Encanto or uh, Paw Patrol or something. You know, you, you just get on with life, don't you, uh, mm. at that stage? And, and that's what we did. And I, I like to think that my brother and I offered uh, a little bit of support to, to mum, but um, just extraordinary, having to sort of almost live it through the TV news. Chris, I think a lot of people now, they always forget that it was only 74 days in length, the entire war. Mm. And yet... It had such a profound effect on so many lives, and so many lives were lost in it too. Yeah. Tell us about your missions in uh, particular in, in Falkland were, Sound. Talk us through a bit of that. Talk us through the geography for a start. It's quite compact. You've got 200 islands, but most of them are blips in the ocean. 
you're looking at about 150 miles across, 70 miles up and down, the two primary islands, East Falkland, West Falkland, and between them is a strip of water called Falkland Sound, which I got to know rather better than I would normally desire. Our first night in Falkland Sound, a week before the landings, was undoubtedly my indelible memory of the war, as it will be for my ship's company forever. Tell me about that night. All the task group was 150 miles-ish out to the east of the islands. We had a most excellent admiral in charge of us, Admiral Sandy Woodward. He said he wanted me to close the islands, investigate the southern flanks, and then run through Falkland Sound by night to see if I could detect, disrupt, and ideally destroy Argentinian resupply efforts but then a lovely PS and see if you can report on any mining activity, which occurred to my ship's company quicker than to me, that the only way that might become apparent would be a loud bang or nothing. How dangerous was that as a mission at the time, you know, penetrating Falkland Sound? What were you most worried about? Enemy emplacements, I mean, they weren't fools. They could know that it was a sheltered entry to the islands. So it was a possibility we would land there. And they had defences over the choke points going in and going out. I'm very grateful the Argentinians were somewhat dozy on that particular night. But we went in dead quiet, no lights, no nothing, inching at a very slow speed and proceeded up through the sound, thinking, whoopee, maybe we can do this quietly, report back and go home to the rest of our ships before the Argentinian Air Force arrive again tomorrow morning. But that went wrong when we detected a large radar echo up ahead that was proceeding towards Pebble Island and the West Falkland, And from all the intelligence data I had, it was quite clear that this was part of their major resupply effort by night. So I had one of these loneliness of command moments where you've got a job to do, you know what it is. All the information I had pointed to a resupply vessel that needed to be neutralized. So we engaged him with my gun at four miles Couldn't see him, but did this blind by radar. I initially fired a type of shell that would hopefully distract him and allow us to close. But rather as I would have done, the captain thought, no, they're shelling me, they're trying to kill me, let's get in. So I then had to change to high explosive direct contact fusing, which is ship killer stuff. And we, um, he blew up, to cut a long story short. And we subsequently found out that he was the Islas de los Estados, an Argentine Navy supply ship who'd been carrying um, aviation fuel and munitions. And it wasn't his night, bless him. 21 men died. That saddened me, but I had no choice. And I at least had the satisfaction we'd done what we'd been told to do.
then all subterfuge was removed with this big bang, and we cranked up to 30 knots, came out of the top of the sound to try and race back to the task group. And at that stage, a Argentine submarine tried to attack us at the entrance with homing torpedo, which missed. We weren't even aware of that at the time. We didn't need to be. I was going top speed, so we were blind, deaf, and dumb and wanted to be. I ran back for, for home, for support. And many years later, 35 years later, I've become firm friends with the captain of the San Luis, being the submarine that had fired the torpedo. And we have happily chunted on and compared track charts and said, you did what? No, I, why did you? Why, what happened at that stage? And he's a dear man, and I correspond with him still. Sorry, long story, but it was an exciting night. <laughs> it's an extraordinary story and quite a night. I mean, for you, just one of the phrases you use there, the loneliness of command. When you're there on that boat, who do you talk to to make that split-second decision? How do you decide before you engage, knowing what it might mean for, for your men as well as for, for, for the enemy? I think that one stands alone in my memory for just that reason. I had a marvellous team. I had some first-class officers. We talked the if-onlys constantly before action happened, and that was a great source of strength to me, and I hope me to them. But that was one of the absolute differences. This was a buck stops with you. I'd been given clear rules of engagement which freed my hands to act dynamically. I'm deeply saddened it had to kill 21 men, but that is the name of war. They'd already tried to kill me in the first day. I'm sorry, that's the name of war. And just remind us of how significant that was at, at the time, taking out an Argentinian ship. I think in military profit and loss account terms, not that huge, but in terms of morale, mm. it was a boomer because we lost Sheffield. We were all champing at the bit, not for revenge, but for taking the initiative back. And you mentioned losing Sheffield. Tell us a bit about that. That was early in the war. We came under several Exocet attacks, Exocet air-to-surface missiles. She was hit and was subsequently lost, and that was the first of our losses. This is BBC One. Now a news report from John Humphreys. Britain has suffered its first major losses in the Falklands conflict. The Ministry of Defence announced tonight that the destroyer Sheffield came under an Argentine missile attack. It later sank. Having sustained those losses and you know, having gone through such an extraordinary experience, you mentioned earlier that you're now in touch with the Argentinian submarine captain. What was it like having that initial contact the first time you connected, given what you'd both been through? A dear interim friend had had contact with both. And he said, I think he'd like to meet you. And I said, I sure as hell would like to meet him, <laughs> having heard the full detail later. He came across to UK. I took him out to lunch. It was just grand. The lunch went on and on and on <laughs> and on. Same age as me, 
not dissimilar backgrounds, but a lovely man. We correspond still. At what point in the lunch, is it the starter or the dessert, when you have to, you have to approach the question of the fact that he did try to kill you, effectively? <laughs> Had that day gone well for him, it, you wouldn't be here. It worked both ways because <laughs> he, was, uh, he was doing his job. He was trying to kill me as I would have tried to kill him if I'd had the chance. Mm. And the fact that I'd just blown up one of his ships with his colleagues was naturally very big juju for him. And he was able to allay that because I was able to explain my orders, my rules, why I did what I did. And that almost cleared a barrier between us. So you see, it balanced out and we thought, really, we're 30 odd years on. Why the hell are we taking a stand on anything? Yeah. Aren't you a nice man? Yes. Don't we get on? Is it quite cathartic? Very. And Duncan, for you, at the age of six, you know, how much were you hearing about this? What sort of contact did you have with your father? What, what were you able to know about what he was actually up to? Yeah, it's not a great deal. I mean, it was extremely limited. We had to rely on occasional letters. And obviously, the theatre of war is not the time to be sitting down and sort of penning Jane Austen-like uh, correspondence, <laughs> is it? It, it? it was very clipped. I think they were called blueies, the, yes. um, the military airmail letters. Are literally blue. <laughs> yeah, literally blue. And um, yeah, whenever that landed, obviously that stood out on the doormat and you'd you know, rush over, open it. And to see Dad's handwriting and get a little bit of news was obviously a massive lift for us. Do you have any of those still with you? I do. I've got one here, in fact. In a moment, we'll hear one of those letters that Chris wrote to Duncan back in 1982. But first... I'm Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1982, during the Falklands War, Chris would use quiet moments 
and there weren't many, to write to his six-year-old son back at home. Here's one of those letters. Dearest Duncan, Thank you for your beautifully written and newsy last letter. Mum has sent me your school report, which utterly delighted me. You have indeed turned a corner. <laughs> I cannot let my thoughts stray to you all too often. A man lost in self-pity in this environment is a total liability. You live by your wits and guts out here. here. There's no slack for anything else. We'll write at much greater length when the pace abates. Love you dearly and miss you greatly. And miss you greatly, Dad. Duncan, apart from the bit about your school report, how much <laughs> of that sort of um, did you really understand at the time? How did you feel at the time and how do you feel reading it again now? Yeah, I think at the time... Um, you know, it's more of a sort of the symbolism of it. You know, you recognise your dad's handwriting. You recognise it's a letter from him. It's what it signifies in terms of him still being around and communicating and thinking about you. It's, it's so strange listening to that again. And I've not really seen or, or read that probably in 30 years. But I, I think it's very eloquent in terms of what it says, but also what it doesn't say. The, the brevity there, it tells you so much about what's going on. And mm. I, I remember boarding the ship when dad returned and seeing his tiny cabin and this little swivel chair that I know he spent much of the war in, you know, he'd sleep for sort of half an hour at a time or 45 minutes. And in a way I can picture him sitting there writing, you know, the, these letters. So yeah, it's obviously uh, something I treasure. I think it reminds me of the threshold of fragility. The only way I could keep balanced was if I had a letter from home, I would read it once and once only I would fold it and I would put it in the bottom of a dark drawer and I would not get it out again. And I just found that was much easier. Getting a, a real sense of how little correspondence was going on, how out of the loop the wives and the mothers were for this war. You know, this is the early 80s. We're mostly looking at letters being exchanged. We're looking at sort of ropey footage on the news and we're looking at sensationalist headlines in, in the newspapers. You know, you try and piece together your loved ones and where they are and what they're doing. And also, how recent is that news? Is that yeah. four days old when you're hearing it? So mum went through a, a huge amount. And, and my respect for her is, is boundless as I uh, sort of ref reflect on what she went through. I don't look back with any trauma as a child thinking about this war. And I think probably a lot of that um, is down to how mum and dad acted. And Chris, talk us through the moment the message comes through that the war is over. One of the main reasons why Alectri is coming back to Devonport is this gun barrel here. It's in fact just plain worn out. Some 500 rounds of ammunition were fired, mostly in bombardments of the Falkland Lions, particularly around the area of Port Stanley. These things are always multifaceted. I'll try and just briefly simplify it. Our gun was out of life. It had reached its limit. We'd fired 597 shells. It was approaching the end of its safe life. I was sent a rather formal and stuffy signal from MOD back at home saying, um, you must not exceed so-and-so, so-and-so. If you do this, the results could be catastrophic. And I'm afraid I was just a little bit irresponsible at this stage. I sent a return signal 
and said, down here, sunshine, if I don't fire it, the results are likely to be a lot more catastrophic. <laughs> they thought that was too trivial. Sandy Woodward was aware of this. I had also, by this stage, I was having trouble with one of my cruise engines that was groaning. And the combination of the two, he sent me a most unwelcome signal with five days to go to the end of war, saying, Alacrity, you've done your bit. Uh, I'd now like you to go proceed back home when we can get you mended, and if necessary, the ship can be brought down again for follow-on. And I said... I don't want to be breast-beating about this, sir, but we've actually had some fairly hard miles here with you, and we're clearly right on the brink of finishing the war. Mm. Could we please just wait till the end? And he was absolutely simpatico, but at the end he said, I'm sorry, sunshine, we need to start the roulement, and you've done your bit. So we actually left, in truth, just a few days before the surrender. We proceeded back for home. And I think the only other noteworthy point, I'd got quite bullish about my ship's company's stamina and capability. When we got to the tropics and they came up into the sunshine and I looked about me, frankly, I was appalled because I saw a lot of pallid faces, drained faces, ultra-tired faces, and I, in my single-minded command concentration, had not realised quite how it all taps into those young men in the depths of a ship mm. um, waiting to be blown out of the water. Sorry to be sentimental, but that's the impact on me. And thence we proceeded home to Plymouth. Tell me about that. Tell me about the homecoming. We came up to Plymouth from the south and up towards our berth. And I had never seen the like, and I'd been coming in and out of Plymouth for years. We had launches following us. We had tugs in station on us, hooting and tooting. We even had the dockyard cranes dipping all along the wharf. All the ships are dressed overall with flags. This was something else. And of course, at our appointed berth, there was this mass of loved ones waiting for their menfolk to be returned. Perhaps I can best, if I may, just read a fragment uh, from my book on this subject because it describes it pretty vividly. And all along the cobbled historic jetties to our right spreads a different mass of green. Every dockyard worker seems to be there, each apparently wearing brand new overalls, bright in the sunlight, which has just emerged through the overcast. These often taciturn men of the West, whose forefathers have served the Royal Navy for generations, are paying their tribute. These stalwarts who built and maintained our ships and who seem on occasions to almost take the Navy for granted are here to a man. For all their normal reserve, they're waving and cheering like the rest. The amazing performance is unprecedented. I looked down across our long forecastle, past our weary gun and up to the shark bow. My men stand motionless, slightly bent against the wind of our passage as the tumult washes about them. Suddenly I am fighting for control. What so unsettles me, despite my responsibilities, is that every set of cheekbones, 
seems to be running wet with tears. These men who have held themselves and each other together for so long can simply no longer control themselves in the face of such a welcome. Shakespeare even captured this moment too. And all my mother came into mine eyes and gave me up to tears. An incredibly... It's, it's still with me. Yeah, I can tell. I think, in truth, it was the nearest I came to losing control, and I didn't, and I wouldn't have done. But, oh boy, it was a test. Coming back, apart from the moment of relief and reunion, obviously was hugely emotional. I mean, what was that like, sort of readjusting? Ah, uh, tricky. Um, certainly in the months that followed, I found myself rather cruelly just getting very irate about stupid things like people's attitudes going about their normal lives, which all just seemed so trivial and irrelevant by comparison with the intensity we'd been part of. That probably was the only difference, and it took a little while to get to. Have you been back to the Falklands in terms of sort of retreading that, that ground? Yes, courtesy of my fine son sitting across <laughs> the table from me here. He rang me up one day and said he had a very important mission to do, one of his travel remits. And I started to grumble and say, oh, life's wonderful for you, isn't it? Where the, where the hell are you going this time? And he smiled at the end of the telephone and said, I'm going to a place called the Falklands. Would you like to come with me? <laughs> so uh, Duncan and I went back and uh, I adored it. Duncan will tell more quite vividly as the onlooker, but every time they see grey hair, they sort of say, were you by any chance here in 82? <laughs> I mean, it was astonishing. We were 30 years on and the knowledge of what happened. I mean, it might as well have been the week before. And so everywhere we went, we would never bring it up. But when it came up, at, you know, the exchange of tales and people to talk in such specifics about what happened was just phenomenal. And, and I sort of just went went around in, in dad's wake, really, for, t for 10 days and just explored this extraordinary destination. I mean, were you surprised by that? You know, tell me about some of the conversations you were having. Were, were people talking about the war as if it was sort of something in recent experience? Well, yes. Um, Duncan and I at one stage visited San Carlos and went south from there. We were speaking to a sheep farmer and he said, you were who? Which ship was that? Alacrity. And he said, oh, he said, I remember on the 11th of May, I was out late tending my sheep. We were wondering when the Brits were going to appear and the task group that was meant to be coming down to save us. And he said the next thing that happened was this colossal flash and explosion out to the west of me, which was this poor unfortunate Isla de los Estados going up. And this man, it was very moving. He was just suddenly realized the Brits have arrived. They're here now. We can get back. That was, I know it struck Duncan deeply, and it really struck me. We, we couldn't get over that man. That must have been amazing to watch for you, watching your father being fated for the things he'd done. And it's not often we've had experiences of war where you come away and you have so many people feeling very grateful for what you did so many years later. 
what I like about it was the Falklands is so diminutive. I think the total area is what half the size of the Isle of Wight. The population is, you know, a small town, if not big village size at, at the time, was it under 2000? The idea of 100 ships and 28,000 men sailing 8,000 miles to liberate something like that. It's the principle of national self-determination that has really struck me. Chris, for you, I mean, you know, you clearly had an extraordinary but incredibly stressful experience. How do you reflect on it all these years later? Well, I think a man is an ape if he thinks that he has a, a monopoly over wisdom, command priorities and professional excellence. Time and again, I'm afraid you have to say, Lady Luck, if it's with you, you live. If it's against you, you're going to die. Now, that isn't fatalism. You can try and load the odds towards the way it should be. But time and again, uh, the more I see of combat, the more I realize that is the case. I think I must just stress that, you know, in amongst this catalog of I did, we did, this in every way mirrors the experience, I'm sure, of my colleagues driving other ships, of the land forces doing their very hard and wonderful saga of what they all achieved all of which I revere, I've just given you a snapshot of one man's war. And it's, it's ever more vivid at the moment with Ukraine and what they're going through. But frankly, I feel very humble talking about our little conflagration mm -hmm. when I see the effort that is going in there and the innocent people who are standing up to be counted. I think I only have one other thing, if I could just stress it quickly, please. We talk about seagoing. I'm afraid the layman often thinks, ah, balmy, tranquil, azure waters, isn't this marvelous? What an existence. I'm sorry, the reality in the South Atlantic, approaching winter in the roaring 40s, which are notorious for being some of the very worst seas in the world, is something else. And that's why I think I have such reverence for our sailors. Every night when you finish on the gun line firing at the enemy, you have to go back into the force and in total darkness find your tanker or your ammunition ship. You have to drive up alongside him. You have to button on. You have to be doing evasive steering all the time. No lights whatsoever. The decks are being swilled with icy mountainous seas. Everything is lurching. I'm sorry to make it sound melodramatic, but I promise you, it is. And that goes on night after day after night. And when they're not doing that, they're between decks festooned in anti-flash gear, their life jackets, hoods, gloves, going about their business. And do you know what the core of it is and why it's all so passionate for the likes of me and others? Interdependence. One baby sailor in a corner of my ops room, not doing his job for a minute, might have added up to us all ending up in an icy grave. We have to care for each other because we are utterly working for each other with every minute of our waking day and night. That gives you a buzz, and they should feel justly proud that they answered that call. The 
The Falklands War began on the 2nd of April, 1982, and lasted 74 days, finally ending on the 14th of June. In those two and a half months, 255 British and 649 Argentinian members of the armed forces were killed, and three islanders also lost their lives. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Chris Craig, the former captain of HMS Alacrity, and his son, Duncan Craig, The Times and Sunday Times travel editor. You can read more of Duncan's work, including his trip with his father back to the Falklands, at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. And we've put a link to Chris's book, Call for Fire, in the description notes of this podcast. The producers today were Will Rowe and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by James Shield. If you found this episode useful, if you enjoyed delving into history, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend.